2: Well, here in London, as everywhere else, it's Valentine's Day. Love is in the air, and what could say Valentine's Day better than an attractive young couple who've only recently met, wandering around central London together, gazing at the architecture. I've no doubt the nature of this introduction will be somewhat alarming to my guest today, who had no idea that there was anything even slightly romantic about our trip around Bloomsbury. Life is full of surprises, ain't it? At one point he even takes me aside to show me his bust, and I admire it. It is Saturday the 14th of February 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud.
0: Hey baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights and sounds. You ain't never seen the light
2: before, just a through your front.
0: Far up.
2: Well, hello, hello, listener. It is one of those days in which London specialises. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, there's a particular colour grey that arrives in the sky uh, early in the morning and uh, fails to leave, and you've got no idea uh, just by looking around you what time of day it might be. You can feel a a general despondency in the air. We're We're hopefully going to cheer things up just a little bit. We're in Bloomsbury, and we're in Gordon Square, which is a place I've not been to before and in fact my guest today Yannick Pucci has managed already to introduce me to a part of town which has been just under my nose for a very long time I've worked just around the corner from here I've certainly been up and down the streets that run parallel with those bordering the square and yet I had no idea that this bit of London exists and shame on me because a couple of my literary heroes have been knocking about here it would seem
3: if we close our eyes we can almost imagine we're in the countryside can't we with the birds in the background (laughs) yes I'll, I'll buy That
2: and we're here uh, primarily to talk about Art Deco. Uh, We should say, of course, that you're a tour guide, an independent tour guide. Yep. And, And where I really want to start is how you find yourself becoming an independent tour guide that must be a leap of faith
3: yes it is quite a leap of faith how long and how much time do we have for, for me to tell you the whole story but uh, sort of my um, tour guiding experience all goes back to uh, the British Museum where I've been uh, volunteering for the five past years and um, during my first year I was offered to do one of the uh, short uh, eye-opener tours which are sort of half-hour introductions to different parts of the collection and and I was offered uh, the Japan tour and I immediately uh, jumped on it and I've never looked back since so uh, that's how uh, the uh, tour guiding gig started let's say so for two years I did that tour and then I suddenly decided oh you should take your ideas and uh, your tour guiding um, out of the museum and to your own so um, and here we are four years later
2: you pick up as you obviously as anybody meets anybody else you pick up little clues about what you think they might be and what sort of person you might be dealing with i've got to say a lot of the tour guides that i've met have one or two clues to a flamboyant personality whereas i'd say just on casting a casual eye over you (laughs) uh, one might be surprised to learn that you've uh, you've got those qualities. i mean do you have those qualities you seem to have put yourself in a job which requires a certain degree of extroversion how easily does that come to you
3: yes it is something completely new to me and if you had asked me five, ten years ago doing tour guiding I would probably have laughed at your face and said never in a million years but there we go, life never say never. So it was really quite of a leap of faith and it was certainly uh, something Completely radical for me and I still remember the first time I uh, did the tours on my own at the museum a couple of minutes before I really wanted to almost disappear and I was what did you get yourself into Yannick are you completely crazy but uh, you know then people are there and you're expected to do uh, the job and uh, there is no running from it so you just need to embrace it and go for it but it is really sort of completely the opposite let's say of who I was um 10 years ago and you sort of embrace a certain type of character and it is almost a bit like acting but not quite uh as such but I always like to compare it a bit it's a heightened version of me you know as they usually say when you watch people on reality shows on tv you know it's a bit them but not quite them it's a bit exaggerated but still so uh that's uh, that
2: Well, enough about you for the time being. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the... Please,
3: let's continue talking about me joking.
2: (laughs) In fact, you know what, let's just put everything we've got planned to one side, uh, half an hour more on you.
3: Yes. (laughs) So where do we continue really now? Uh, A good
2: idea probably to orient ourselves would be to get a sense of the sorts of tours that you run and uh, maybe find out how they came to be what you're focusing on.
3: Yep. So um, my first sort of independent tour on my own was uh, a tour of Holland Park, which I still do today. And that sort of is a bit of a bridge between my own thing and the museum thing. So as I was doing the Japan tour at the museum, I thought, oh, let's explore other Japanese connections here in London. And so uh, I went to Holland Park and I was quite intrigued by the Japanese garden that they uh, have uh, within um, the park, and uh, so that's really what got me off and started. And I they, was... they
2: used to have wild pigs in Holland Park, didn't they?
3: Yes, sometimes they have pigs. Now, in recent years, they've introduced cows sometimes, so there's lots going on there. And um, so I was a bit um, intrigued by the whole um, sort of. Um, history of the garden because you won't find that much uh, information within the park itself and uh, you know in japanese culture everything will be heavily codified so i knew that there was a bit more to it uh, than at first glance and so i researched it and uh, I uh, discovered quite a few bits and pieces about it. And it is the most authentic Japanese garden here in the UK. So, uh, And to this day, the uh, Japanese garden designer still comes back and uh, he sometimes wants to fiddle around and change things. But then, totally different, uh, for my Art Deco walk, that was really a bit of... um, lucky chance and count as well it was a bit of a crazy idea that i had one sunday morning and it suddenly popped into my head you have so many art deco buildings uh, in uh, bloomsbury and i remember it was summer and i started looking around and seeing them everywhere and i knew that in uh, october the bloomsbury festival would be uh, taking place so i uh, emailed them sort of one month and a half before and they were just before um, Getting to the deadline of uh, printing uh, the brochures, I spoke with the uh, festival organizer, and she was. We decided to uh, go for it, and then I quickly did the research and all those bits and pieces. And um, when the walk finally came, I thought, "Oh, you know, it's going to be a niche walk. Not that many people will be sort of interested in Art Deco architecture." And uh, then on the first day of the festival, 50 people turned up, so that was a bit uh, surprising, let's say. And uh, we did it, and everyone seemed um, to love it, and I've really uh, sort of learned since then that the public really has the strong interest in uh, Art Deco architecture and also, to some extent, the Art Deco lifestyle, but um, that's a bit less uh, evidenced on the streets, let's say, of London.
2: The moment I knew we were going to be talking about Art Deco, of course, i do what anybody would do and uh, try to summarise my knowledge of Art Deco. Yep. And I practically flatlined. Uh, <laughs> I've got a very clear idea of what Art Deco looks like, but attempting to formulate the the rules of it, or I mean, we of course all know that it surfaced around about the 1920s, 1930s. Yep. Uh, we think of those very geometric shapes, I suppose, as, as one of the qualities. But of course, Art Deco isn't just inherent in architecture; it also appears uh, in other art forms. Yep. And, and at that point, I started to struggle uh, manfully, but uh, struggle nonetheless. How would you introduce Art Deco? in all its various forms.
3: Yes, so as you mentioned, uh, I thought it was quite interesting how you sort of um, referenced the visual quality of our deco, which is certainly very inherent. And it's quite funny because immediately when you see a deco building, you sort of recognize it for what it is. And uh, so you mentioned the geometrical shapes and uh, sort of the lavish ornamentation that we can see on different buildings so those are a bit telltale signs of it but the art deco movement really goes back to uh, 1925 and an international sort of design fair which was happening in paris at that time and uh, so it's from there really that uh, the movement really takes over all across uh, the globe and it has different forms and variations and influences but one of the things which I thought quite interesting while researching the movement is that uh, the Art Deco as a term was only coined in the 1960s. And it was in use before, but not as sort of uh, popular as it is now, for example. And back in the day, you would have referred to that style as jazz modern or steel modern. So Art Deco as a concept sort of dates from the 60s and at that time you had a bit of a revival with the style, if you think at the Biba clothing store in uh, High Street Ken, for example they would have a bit appropriated those uh, design styles and brought them back to life in uh, their department store You know, it is really sort of looking back and it's a bit anachronistic uh, when we talk about uh, those buildings as Deco, but there we go.
2: As is the way with a lot of styles of course they yes. get applied uh, yeah. r- retrospectively uh, and I'm, I'm a big fan I must say one of the, the offshoots of Art Deco which is I think it's called something like Air, Airflow Modern or Streamline Modern. Streamline Modern. Yeah.
3: Well there we go this is a bit uh, controversial as well because some uh, architectural critics they will say it's sort of a rejection of the Art Deco movement some people will say it's a sort of progression of it. I think maybe the best way for us to look at it is as an update and sort of uh, bringing it further. But if you like Streamline modern, you must uh, really go see the uh, Daimler garage, which is very close to uh, Russell Square tube station and also part of my tour. So it's a beautiful 1930s uh, garage, which uh, takes those elements up. And uh, it's a beautiful example of what is often being referred to as the Miami deco because it will be white and it will make us sort of think of those beach towns, LA, Miami, of course both cities in the U.S. uh, sort of associated with the deco movement.
2: I I sort of think of Gotham City uh, in uh, Batman as well as as being a bit deco.
3: Yes, and that will sort of bring us to the second variation of uh, the deco movement, which will be the New York deco, which is often sort of being highlighted by the skyscrapers. Oh, the
2: Chrysler building.
3: The Chrysler Building, indeed, but also here in uh, London, and especially Bloomsbury. we Can we actually see it? No, we cannot see it uh, from uh, where we are sitting, unfortunately, but I'll show it to you later. Senate House, which was one of the first uh, sort of high-tall buildings uh, here in London, and uh, it is often being considered as the um, first skyscraper here in London.
2: Well, I'm glad you brought us back to London. I was a bit worried that we were going to go off uh,
3: exactly. <laughs> and never return. Yes, we could almost go to the States. and uh, But uh, it's quite interesting because, um, you know, we've come to associate Art Deco so much with the state, but it is uh, all across Europe as well as the world. And uh, it is really sort of important to underline that it was such an international movement and it has different offshoots and it will have influence sort of different... Uh, Styles, but um you know also, as we were just talking earlier on about the clock, we saw you have those um, design elements going into it. you know it has all those different styles, and uh, it will also be uh, declined in different variation across the country. so if you think, for example, the futuristic movement in Italy, you know it's closely linked as well, it will have those stark geometrical lines to it as well so Really, the gist of what I'm saying is that there are no boundaries or clear-cut uh, divisions as such. And, you know, concepts and ideas and sort of bounding it in comes usually a bit later.
2: Something strange, and this is, this is uh, tangential really, uh, although we stay with the Art Deco theme, but when I think of the fashions in particularly women's clothing from the 20s and 30s, it all seems uh, not to match the, uh, the ideals of Deco at all. It all seems rather uh, sort of in, insubstantial.
3: Yeah. Well, I must admit, I'm uh, not a fashion expert. So what I do sort of know of our deco fashion, it is a bit uh, different than uh, sort of the buildings as such, because, you know, when we think of the buildings, they're usually very stark and simple, and it's not too much ornamentation, while uh, the um, sort of... um, Clothing styles will uh, be a bit more uh, flamboyant as well, but they will take up the patterning, for example, and uh, it will be sort of very ornate in a bit of a subdued way. But, uh, for example, if you go to the v and their fashion section, they have a very nice sort of display on twenties, uh, thirties fashion and how the movement would have uh, sort of flown into it. But I'm also thinking of. Uh, Egyptian influences, which will also have been picked up by the Art Deco movement, especially with the sort of Egyptian um, pillars from temple architecture. VND they have this uh, very lovely uh, handbag which has sort of Egyptian style hieroglyphics on it and it is from the 20s but also i don't know if you uh, caught the um, exhibition last year at the Ashmolean museum uh, about king tut and that mania which was 20s and 30s as well so you had also sort of a jacket from the VND which is not on display i believe but it had sort of the Egyptian uh, patterning and uh, sort of drawings on it as well so you have those um, elements being picked up in the fashion but of course 1930s howard carter the excavation of the tomb of tutankhamun and all those links as well uh,
2: i think you do very well there for somebody who's not an expert in that particular part of art deco
3: yeah Who knows? Maybe a future tour happening there or uh, collaborations. We don't know. But I think also when you mentioned fashion and uh, also sort of leading a a bit back to um, generally art deco, at the same time that the movement becomes popular, we also have uh, the golden age of Hollywood, which will tie into it, which also explains why a lot of uh, cinemas will be done in an art deco fashion. So, unfortunately, we don't have any Art Deco cinemas sort of left in uh, Bloomsbury, but there are quite a few around London. Yeah, I was
2: uh, past the Coronet on Holloway Road. Is would, would, yeah. that, would that fall into that category?
3: Yeah, no, definitely. It has the uh, strong lines and uh, sort of the um, geometrical patterns to it. And um, so you have quite a few... Uh, 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 here and there. There used to be one on Tottenham Court Road but it was I think demolished in the 70s or 80s it's uh, now a building site which is a bit of a shame
2: I'm going to see if I can bag myself a a private whistle stop tour of some of the art deco in the area for the second half of today's episode. Uh, The signs are looking good, there's a a reluctant nod going on there (laughs)
3: not reluctant at all let's go for it you know it's a day of discoveries as we've noted already so uh, let's go for it
2: fantastic okay well before we head off then and we'll uh, go to a word from our sponsor in just a moment before we do that you have a couple of blogs that people might want to reference
3: yes so uh, my main website and uh, the blog on it is known as londonunraveled.com uh, and you can find out all about uh, my tours as well as uh, other endeavors or my volunteering work at uh, the british museum and uh, next month i'm sort of also going to launch uh, the follow-up to my art deco in bloomsbury tour and that will be the art deco in the strand tour so uh very uh, flashy buildings there and quite a nice bit of quirky history here and there as well so
2: okay well as uh, as suggested we'll be back in just a moment with a tour of art deco bloomsbury
0: londonist out loud is sponsored by audible to claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles try the audible service on 30-day free trial Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk and click through.
2: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and with me Yannick Pucci who is a tour guide, an independent tour guide in London uh, specialising in art deco and I, th- I think matters of design more generally.
3: Yeah design but also I do a macaron and muse tour which is completely different so it's a bit of a foodie themed walk. So, uh, what, what was the word you used there? Macarons, you do a macaroons tour? Yep. So that's in uh, Knightsbridge and Belgravia. So. Uh, and, I, and
2: here I am on the, uh, the Art Deco tour.
3: Yeah, you know, if I, what was I thinking, really?
2: <laughs> well, what was I thinking?
3: Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I also do a history of the telephone box tour, which is also a bit out there and something different. So, while I do have a strong interest in design and architecture, and I'm also planning to do more deco tours, I try not to uh, pigeonhole myself too much. And you know, London has brought many topics and uh, many interesting things to explore. We are currently
2: in Tavistock Square and heading what I think might be north to the junction of Ensley Place. Uh, what are we doing here?
3: Yes, we are going to uh, have a look at uh, this beautiful uh, apartment complex, Tavistock Court. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?
0: Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com/newsadfree.
1: that's 15% off at burrow.com/acast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
3: which goes back to 1934, 1935, and it has a bit of uh, Art Deco ornamentation on it, especially uh, sort of the intriguing frieze design, which uh, I'll try to describe in a second when we are closer to it.
2: Here we go, David Stock Court, and we've got a few scenes there that look to be of a religious nature, a stag with its antlers. and uh, yes. Oh, yes, there's a crucifix above the stag.
3: So yes, this uh, building was originally uh, done for the uh, church council and they had some offices here on the ground floor and they still exist in uh, different forms but uh, the bulk of the building is a residential property which they would rent out. And some of the rooms, they go from one room to uh, four rooms and uh, so, out uh, of the freeze is uh, quite intriguing. So as you have sort of justly uh, sort of... Um picked up they do have a few uh, religious connotations here and there so here on the main frieze, we have the name and we have the figure of a female saint and a monk on the corner so that's all fairly straightforward and obvious but it is really those two middle freezers, which are a bit more enigmatic. So uh, you have this soldier and uh, you have the stag in the background and also the golden cross at the top, which is emanating uh, light. A, a, R-
2: a Roman soldier, we should specify.
3: He looks Roman, but uh, you're sort of uh, stealing my point there, but uh, I'll allow... Uh... <laughs> you to do that uh, for the purposes of this uh, interview. You know, I always joke I'm a bit the sidekick on my own tours, and you've just proven it here live on tape. There we go. Uh,
2: oh it uh, does
3: look a bit Roman, but this is actually uh, a medieval story, and it's uh, depicting Saint Hubert, who was a uh, Belgian saint, and uh, his uh, wife and his baby had died, and for a long time he was mourning them, but he he was also a big hunter so one day he decided to go back into the forest to hunt he came upon a stag and that stag had a golden cross amidst the antlers and out of it came the uh, voice of god saying if you come back onto the righteous path i will help you out he did and later on he was made the bishop of the uh, city of liege in belgium but uh, you know in this depiction he does look very much roman or um, Greek, for example. So you have those, uh, you know, how the Art Deco movement would also have picked up some classical elements. And uh, so there you have a bit this uh, mishmash of, uh, you know, medieval story made a bit to look like, you know, antiquity.
2: What's the information flow here? Is it that you, and this seems unlikely to me, that you stumbled upon this freeze and then managed to find out that story, or, or did it come the other way around? You heard the story and then came and looked at the place?
3: Uh, no. I, uh, As with most buildings, I will first see them and I will sort of... Um be attracted to them in a different way and you'll pick up all those details and you make uh, it
2: sound very easy how did you find out about this for example
3: uh, about this building here well first of all walking and having a look so it's always a matter of looking up looking down looking sideways and taking it all in and picking up on the details but uh, then I had a bit of a look online and um I found someone who had done a bit of research and sort of picked up that this would be a this story and Then, when you sort of trace it back, it does make uh sense that um uh, that is what is being depicted here. But then I also went to uh, the uh, Camden Archive and I did a bit of digging. But I found a book which uh, the Church Council had released about their own history. They will tell you everything that you don't want to know in that book, but they won't tell you anything about the ornamentation or the frieze. So that's also why the name of uh, the artist is uh, lost. But you see, with those ones that we've just discussed it's fairly sort of um, straightforward to pick up a few of the uh, religious connotations and uh, it makes sense also on the uh Freeze with the name at the bottom. You have uh, the scallop shell, which will be uh, the pilgrimage sign of going to uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain and all those kind of things. But if we have a look at the freeze over the doorway there, that's sort of where all the religious connotations do get lost because you have those sea deities on it and also a ship. And uh, during one of my, um, you know, previous tours that I did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Someone suggested that almost a ship looks a bit Viking on it. So, you you know, that's sort of where all the religious symbolism uh, gets lost. And, you know, mermen, mermaids are not necessarily um, associated with any uh, religious uh, notions. So that's where a bit... Um the ideas behind it do get lost but especially on a tour, having a bit of mystery usually does help and uh, so we can have a bit of a discussion about it and chat and try to figure out what is happening here but I don't have a definite answer but I do love the very stylized waves at the bottom and how they are sort of being depicted
2: Uh, We are going to move on from Tavistock Square. Uh, Where's our next stop?
3: Now we're going to have a look at the Daimler Garage uh, next to uh, Russell Square Tube Station.
2: Yes, I'm looking forward to this. By the way, if uh, you, uh, listener, happen to have any information on any of the uh, mysteries that crop up as a result of this conversation, do get in touch. I'm indebted to somebody who's been in touch. Uh, we had a bit of a mystery about the uh, Mother black cap from Withnail and I a few episodes ago, and someone was very kind and wrote in to let me know where it is. I'll uh, get back to you personally about that. Um, but I'm, I'm delighted. Do have a look in the comments sections of uh, the Londonist Out Loud episodes if anybody also fancies solving a mystery for me there's a beautiful building in bethnal green i think it's called something like Frankel trimmings uh, but it's one of the most peculiar shapes of building i've ever seen i might find that my guest today knows something about it or i might not but I, I, it's got a whiff of deco about I it
3: i don't know about the building you're referencing and i'll look it up but always when it comes to building a good tip is to have a look at uh, which uh, he was an architectural historian and he has released a series of uh, books in the 60s and 70s and they've been updated since. He's not always the biggest fan of deco, so when it does crop up it will usually only get a line, but that's always a good place to start when uh, you're trying to do a bit of research on a building and it will give you basic information.
2: Is it uh, on online, or is it still hard copies?
3: uh it will be hard copies, so there might be an online directory, but I guess if it's online, you would have to pay for it i'm a, I'm a big fan of hard copies. Good. Well, they are very chunky, and you could kill someone with the book
2: Well that's good. utility here, yeah, very important.
3: Yeah, multifunctional.
2: I think, I mean, to be honest, if we were to start to list the uh, objects with which you can kill someone, yeah. we'd be here all day. That's true, that's true. It's all, it's all about ingenuity, not materials.
3: Yeah. But also, uh, before we go, in the corner, do you know about the bust of Virginia Woolf there? No, I don't. Uh, oh,
2: right, okay, well, so we're in the corner of, uh, in the corner of uh, Tavistock Square here, and uh, somebody's left their head behind.
3: <laughs> yes. But it wasn't chopped off. Uh, It's a bust of uh, Virginia Woolf. And it's a copy of an original which is standing uh, inside the National Portrait Gallery. I must admit, and I shouldn't say anything uh, negative about uh, Bloomsbury here, but I think they've a bit uh, botched this one up because the pedestal is a bit too disproportionate, I think, for uh, the sculpture. And, you know, she's such a prominent figure here in uh, Bloomsbury. You'd think she needed something a bit more extravagant, and I'm not saying necessarily over the top, but also she's hidden in this corner here and uh, sort of a bit lost.
2: Well, For me, the unfortunate effect of this pedestal is because it takes her head up to where her head would probably be in real life. Um, so you, we go down as far as the shoulders with the bust, and then it becomes this rectangular column. It looks as though the rest of her is in that column. I'm s- sort of reminded of uh, various sci-fi shows uh, where a futuristic wheelchair is being used, and you can just see the head of the person poking out of the top.
3: That's a very nice description. I might have to steal that one for a future tour. But, you can have uh, that one on me. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You're being so gracious to me and today. But, uh, yeah, no, it has that sort of monolithic quality to it and uh, I'm not sure it's the best representation and um, but there we go it has a nice quote though on it and it tells you that uh, while walking around Tavistock Square she got the idea for to the lighthouse.
2: Listener, I'm going to spare you every single fascinating footstep of our trip from Tavistock Square down to Russell Square, but we've just hit the junction with Coram Street, and we've come upon a a rather attractive building here. Uh, I shall hand over to my guide to describe it.
3: Yes, here we've come to uh, Russell Court, which is a huge mansion block of 500 units, which was done in 1937, and it's linked to one of the architects who also did uh, the BBC Broadcasting House, for example. And here we are looking at the corner of it, and we can see a concave curve to uh, the shape of the building and we are standing just next to uh, the entrance to a car park but this car park back in the day used to be a petrol station so um, you know also the 20s, 30s, the same time as uh, the deco movement is uh, really uh, creating waves also the car is really uh, growing in popularity which uh, leads us sort of to the next building we are going to see, the Daimler Garage which uh, would have rented out uh, chauffeur-driven limousines to uh, the bright young things of their day.
2: Of course, this area was uh, just about as affluent then as it is now.
3: Yes, I think the history of Bloomsbury has always been sort of cosmopolitan, and I wouldn't necessarily say uh, rich as such, but certainly middle class. But also a lot of the um, you know figures we have counted a bit while walking around the Bloomsbury Group. You know they often sort of wanted to pass themselves off as the people, but, you know, they had money and some of them hired links to uh, aristocracy.
2: If I remember correctly, a, a tenement building that I lived in in uh, West London was probably of around about this vintage. Um, certainly had a lot of the flourishes that I'd associate with Art Deco, and uh, the building was pretty much falling apart. Certainly the lift was always out of service. Uh, the floors seemed to be coming apart frequent leaks from upstairs and so forth it was a joy to live in I wonder what sort of shape a lot of these buildings are in you hear of some of those buildings from the 1960s where the I think it's called concrete death where the the concrete all collapsing under its own weight is it that a lot of the art deco buildings are coming to the end of their usefulness or did I just uh, pull a bad hand I
3: think you probably just pulled uh, a bad hand and uh, but as with most building it's probably uh, You know, from case to case, it will be a bit uh, different. But uh, deco buildings are certainly having a bit of a revival at the moment. And I think if you do them up, you could uh, get uh, some nice sums of money out of them. So it's probably just uh, a case of, um, you know, investing time and money. What I've got are doing... You know, this tour here in Bloomsbury for over a year now is that there is this strong enthusiasm for deco and people will do deco-style weddings, parties and events. So uh, it is almost a style that has never gone out of fashion.
2: This is going to be our last stop on our Whistle Stop tour and this is a real treat. And again, uh, I've been around the Russell Square area an awful lot of times, never ventured up this street. And uh, this is a, a vision in white uh, in front of us. And just as we start talking about it, UPS has arrived uh, indeed, to, to plant indeed. themselves in front of the building.
3: Indeed, indeed. Well, that's, uh, you know, tour guiding. There will always be... In unpredictable nature to it and uh, things uh, won't necessarily go off as you want them to go but yes here we've made our way uh, to the Daimler garage which you can find on Herbrand Street which is just off uh, Russell Square Tube Station and so this garage goes back to uh, 1931 and it was done by the architectural company known as Wallace Gilbert and Partners and they are responsible for doing another famous Art Deco building here in London, which I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the Hoover factory in Perivale. and so uh, this uh, however came one year uh, before they did that one so maybe we can see this a bit as the blueprint, the model because you'll see it's a bit uh, similar uh, design style for example and you have uh, the very stark white and this was sort of uh, done on purpose so you could always repaint it and uh, keep it uh, fresh but you'll also see that now it's owned by an advertisement agency but that also explains why it is so pristine at the moment and you know in advertisement as in many industries first impressions do count and uh, it is a listed building as well and so uh, you can see a lot of uh, geometrical shapes throughout the whole of the building and so the cars they would have come in this side and uh, driven up uh, via the ram and you can see the beautiful curves of uh, the building. But, um, you know, you called it a vision in white, and it certainly is. And this is an example of the Miami Deco, which I was uh, referencing a bit uh, earlier on. And uh, this one has quite a few uh, different sort of uh, nice ornaments to it. You can see the green colouring, for example, which is used throughout on the doors, on the tiling, on the uh, metal frames for the windows. You also mentioned Streamline Modern earlier on. And this is a building which sort of fits that bill as well. So you can see it's a bit a softened up version of our deco and it has the different curves here and there. But also if you just have a look straight ahead of you, you can see a sort of that very large window there. And this is almost a bit like an optical illusion. It will make your eye wander to the top and uh, make the uh, building look a bit bigger because if you have a look at it from uh, the other side of the street you'll see it's not that tall actually but also this very tall window is sort of a bit uh, modelled on uh, Egyptian temple architecture so it could be a pillar and uh, you know, which is sort of being shown via the different tiling and the colour scheme it's something you would see for example on... Uh, various cinema buildings as well this really
2: is an incredible structure really pleasing on the eye and also completely at odds with everything around it the big difference of course is that the uh, the brickworks covered up and i, I suppose i'm beginning to uh, reach the understanding that that's one of the big separating factors within art deco there's that kind of stark brick look and then there's this whitewashed look that does everything it can to hide the bricks
3: Yeah, so uh, there is uh, definitely this contrast between uh, the different styles. But I thought it interesting how you sort of picked up about all the different styles that we've seen while walking along. But also here in this street and also the whole area. And you'll have this strong mishmash of a different architectural style and to some extent I think that reflects London you know go around the corner and you'll be faced with a complete different uh, type of uh, architecture but you know we've been talking about this building here from the 1930s deco but then just down around the corner you'll have uh, the Russell Hotel which is done In uh, the eclectic style which is sort of 1890s and eclectic it certainly is and you know you have French, you have Italian elements flowing into it also high Victorian but then you know a few streets down we can encounter the brutalist architecture of the Brunswick Centre here in Bloomsbury so you have all those different styles coexisting together and they sort of seem to uh, blend in well together
2: and this is London
3: yep that's London for you (laughs) Uh, we need
2: to come to an end Uh, I would like to continue with the tour and indeed uh, off mic uh, we may see if we're able to do something like that but the easiest way to find out about the buildings we've been talking about and uh, many more is of course to get on one of Yannick's tours Uh, and they can be found where?
3: On londonunravel.com and also on Eventbrite. But you can also find me uh, on Twitter, uh, where I'm quite prolific, probably a bit addicted, I shall say. So you can find me under at YPLDN.
2: Well, Yannick Pucci, thanks very much for today.
3: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. for
2: that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest Yannick Pucci. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music were by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolf. That's a wrap.